1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 through 20 is our study this morning. As you noticed, we are leaving the study of Mark just briefly uh, to talk about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 20. And we'll look a little bit at verses uh, 1 to 11 uh, as a background. So that's our passage this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer and we'll get into the Word of God together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for what a magnificent day this is that we can celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that that means to us and the importance of the resurrection. Lord, we know it's something that isn't celebrated just one Sunday a year, but something we as believers in Jesus Christ should celebrate all the time. For it is the central truth of our faith that sin and death have been conquered by our Savior who willingly went to the cross, who willingly took upon his body our sin, so that he might conquer sin and death, and so that we might have the hope of eternal life. Lord, thank you. Guide us in the study this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you uh, want to look for disorder and confusion in the church, you look to the book of 1 Corinthians. (laughs) The Corinthian church was confused about a lot of things. The Corinthian church got a lot of things wrong, and basically the book of 1 Corinthians is made up of questions that the Corinthians asked Paul and that he answered about their doctrine, about the the, uh, things that they believed, the way that they lived. And 1 Corinthians 12 is no different from the rest of the book. There was a question about the resurrection, and we'll get into that, but confusion didn't just reign in the Corinthians church. I was uh, looking at a newspaper several years ago now, and I came across this headline, Kids Trampled at Hunt for Easter Eggs. And the article goes something like this. A church-sponsored Easter egg hunt turned into a free-for-all. Some 5,000 people were drawn to Saturday's event held by the World Harvest Church which featured, I'm not making this up, this is an actual uh, newspaper. Some of you remember newspapers, right? Uh, Okay. Uh, This is an actual newspaper article. Uh, The World Harvest Church, which featured a pile of thousands of artificial eggs containing Bible verses and pieces of candy. But when it came time to grab the treats, children were joined by anxious parents rushing the pile and eggs and young youngsters got trampled. This isn't an Easter egg hunt, it's an Easter egg massacre, said, said Joe Vetter, one of the adults watching the debacle. Deborah Edge took her six-year-old and 10-year-old children to the hunt and was shocked at how some parents behaved. I saw a lady stealing out of a little kid's basket, she said. Isn't this marvelous? A spokesman for the church labeled the event a success. <laughs> no comment. Uh, 
but said next year it would, be, it would restrict the hunt to children. <laughs> Talk about confusion. Uh, I ran also across this story, which is one of my favorite about, about the resurrection. Uh, a group of four-year-olds were gathered in a Sunday school class. The teacher looked at the class and asked this question. Does anyone know what today is? This was on Palm Sunday when she was asking this. Does anyone know what today is? A little four-year-old girl held up her hand and said, yes, today is Palm Sunday. The teacher exclaimed, that's fantastic, that's wonderful. Now, does anyone know what next Sunday is? The same little girl held up her hand and said, yes, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. Once again, the teacher said, that's fantastic. Now, does anyone know what makes next Sunday Easter? The little girl responded and said, yes, next Sunday is Easter because Jesus rose from the grave and before the teacher could congratulate her, she kept on talking and said, but if he sees his shadow, he has to go back in for seven weeks. <laughs> talk, about, talk about confusion about the resurrection. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll uh, settle some confusion about the resurrection this morning. A couple of things I want to say just by way of introducing the topic of 1 Corinthians 12, 19 through 20. The resurrection, one writer said, is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. Because it is the cornerstone of the gospel, the resurrection has been the target of Satan's greatest attacks against the church. If Christ did not live past the grave, those who trust in him surely cannot hope to do so. Wow, that's a great statement. If Christ did not live beyond the grave, which is what we celebrate in the resurrection, that Christ lived beyond the grave. Christ died, was buried, and rose again from the dead in a glorified body. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then we don't know that God accepted his sacrifice. We don't know that we, don't, we are free from sin and death because we put our trust in him. That's how important the resurrection is. And I like that statement. If Christ did not live past the grave, those who trust in him surely cannot hope to do so. And yet that is the hope you and I have as believers in Jesus Christ, right? That we are going to have eternal life. We're going to be with him forever. Uh, we're going to be resurrected ourselves physically into God's presence. Another writer said, the bodily resurrection of Christ is the center of the Christian faith. The bodily resurrection of Christ is the center of the Christian faith. You see, we'll talk about this as we go this morning, but the resurrection is the proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. We wouldn't know whether God accepted his sacrifice if it were not for the resurrection. So our hope of eternal life, our hope of life beyond the grave, hinges on the resurrection. That's how important the resurrection is. The central theme of verses 12 to 20 in 1 Corinthians 15 is this. One writer put it this way. Paul shows that logically the doctrine of bodily resurrection cannot be denied 
without rendering the gospel worthless. That's an important statement. And that's exactly what he says all throughout 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 20. You see, the bodily resurrection cannot be denied without rendering the gospel worthless. Now, five things we're going to see as we look through this particular passage, five applications I want to make. Uh, usually we save application for the end. I thought I'd really give us all a treat and do it first. Uh, so we're going to look at application first, and then we'll uh, kind of hit it again at the end. Uh, we must interpret culture by the Word of God. We must interpret culture by the Word of God and not the other way around and not interpret the Word of God by culture. That was important in Paul's day. That was important when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. That was important when the other New Testament and Old Testament books were being written. That is important today. That is important today, and that's a principle we see in this particular passage. We must interpret culture by the Word of God, not the other way around. Not interpret the, the Word of God by culture. Why do I say that? Well, you see, at the heart of the problem with denying the resurrection, and that's what the Corinthians were doing, the heart of the problem is they were the Greeks. Corinthians was a Greek church and Greek believers but they brought their old philosophies into their Christian life. They wouldn't let go of their old philosophies. They were dualists. They were dualists. In other words, they believed that body material was evil, but soul and spirit was good. So they couldn't even envision why anybody would want a bodily resurrection. They had already gotten, they had just gotten rid of their body. Why would they want to be resurrected? And so they brought that dualistic thinking, they brought that dualistic philosophy into their Christianity, and so they were living with one foot in Christian doctrine and the other foot in their old bereft doctrine. And so they were interpreting the Word of God by their culture. They were interpreting the Word of God by the fact that their culture said that flesh body, material, is bad. And so they were denying the Word of God. But worse yet, to deny the Word of God in this area is to deny, and that's what Paul tells us here, to deny that even Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. It was an important doctrine. And so the first thing that I want us to see as we go through here is that we must, interp we must interpret culture by the Word of God. What we learn in the Scripture, what we study in the Scripture must be applied to our culture, not our culture made to fit into the Word of God where it doesn't belong. That's an important doctrine. A second thing I want us to see here is salvation is meant to bring eternal benefits. Salvation is meant to bring eternal benefits, not just a better life, not just benefits only for the present life. I'm afraid that when we talk about salvation, when we talk about being in relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, we often talk about it in the benefits here and now. This is what you get if you put your faith in Christ. This is your benefit right here and now. Now certainly there are benefits to 
being a believer in Jesus Christ. Certainly our lives are enriched by being believers in Jesus Christ, but salvation isn't meant only to improve this life. It's not only meant to give us a better life in this life, it's meant to prepare us for an eternity with God. It's meant to prepare us for an eternity of serving God. It's not just for the here and now. It's for eternity. That, and, and we must understand that salvation is meant to bring eternal benefits. God will have fruitful things for you and I to do. We, just, we won't just be sitting in that lazy boy in the sky throughout all eternity. We will have fruitful things to do. And, but this life is a preparation for it. Certainly, bring, salvation brings us temporal benefits. There's no question about that. But you know, even it's true that salvation brings us challenges in this life. Many believers can testify that life got harder after trusting Christ. Life got more difficult after trusting Christ. So we have to get rid of this idea that being saved is all about a good life now. And understand that it does bring a good life if we're following God's will, if we're walking with him. It does bring a good life now. But we also have to understand that salvation is meant to bring eternal benefits to us. Eternal benefits to us. Uh, A third thing I want us to see as we go through this Without resurrection, we could not, and we mentioned this a moment ago, without resurrection, we could not be sure that we've been delivered from the ultimate wages of sin. In other words, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't know for a fact that God accepted his sacrifice. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all we know is that a good man, a great man, died. But because he is resurrected from the dead, because he is the first, the first fruits, as Paul calls it here in 1 Corinthians 12, because he is the first to conquer sin and conquer its consequence, death, we know that God accepted his sacrifice. Therefore, we know that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, that he will accept us in his, in his son Jesus. So the resurrection assures for us that God has accepted his sacrifice, assures for us that the ultimate wages of sin being death have been paid by our Savior and accepted by God the Father. And that's an important thing for us to understand. The fourth application I'd like to make of this is this. The resurrection should affect our conduct our conduct here and now. Living for the resurrection, living and looking toward the time when we will be resurrected from the grave into God's presence to be used by Him throughout all eternity should affect how we live now. Vance Havner said this, it is possible to be very orthodox about revelation, that is about the Word of God and the resurrection and yet to assume little responsibility for the way we live today. Paul lived today with that day, the day of the resurrection, always in mind. Faith in revelation past 
and hope in the resurrection to come should show up in godly exercise now. The fifth thing I'd like us to see as we go through this passage this morning is that the resurrected Christ is the guarantee of the resurrection of all God's redeemed people. The resurrected Christ is the guarantee of the resurrection of all God's redeemed people. Well, what we're going to see, and uh, again, we're kind of just introducing this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 20, there are uh, several consequences of rejecting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul teaches that there are several consequences of rejecting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll see that as we go through it. Uh, if there is no resurrection, which is what some of the Corinthians were saying, if there is no resurrection, which some of the Corinthians were teaching, if there is no resurrection, Paul said, then the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is untrue. And yet Paul said that was at the heart of the gospel we taught. That was at the heart of the gospel we taught. If the resurrection isn't true, if there is no resurrection, then the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ has to be untrue. And yet Paul said that was at the heart of our teaching. That was at the heart of what the, the Corinthians believed in. It's at the heart of what, at, of what you and I believe in is the resurrection. And so, uh, if there's no resurrection, then the bodily resurrection of Jesus is untrue. If his resurrection is untrue, then Paul said there are five consequences that we'll see as we go through this passage. There is no message for us to proclaim. We're wasting our time here this morning if Christ isn't resurrected. We're wasting our time. We may leave here feeling good. When I was an unbeliever, it was an amazing thing. I didn't go to church much, didn't care for it much, didn't care for the Bible, didn't care for God, really, unless he could help me out of a jam. You know, I really like that. Um, but I didn't go to church much. Because there was no message that I had understood. But you see, if the resurrection is untrue, there's no message for you and I to understand here. There's no message for us to proclaim. The second thing Paul says in this passage is if there's no resurrection, then those who proclaim the message are liars. I don't like being called a liar, but that's what he's saying. If the resurrection isn't true, I am a liar. I'm lying to you this morning if the resurrection isn't true. Paul said, the resurrection isn't true and Jesus Christ is not resurrected from the dead, then Paul's teaching, Paul himself is a liar and those who taught what he taught were liars. The third consequence is if there is no resurrection, then faith is futile and we're still in our sins. Faith is futile and we're still in our sins. A fourth thing that Paul says here, if there is no resurrection, then believers who die are lost. <clears throat> Believers who die are lost. 
And the fifth consequence, if there is no resurrection, is that those who are living by faith are fools and they're to be pitied. That's not my words, Lord, uh, folks. That's what Paul communicated. That's what Paul communicated to us. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not resurrected from the dead. If Christ is not resurrected from the dead, there's no message to proclaim. Those who proclaim the message are liars. Faith is futile. We're still in our sins. Believers who die are lost. And those who are living by faith are foolish because they're going through trials and sacrifices and problems for a faith that is a fiction. But the good news is the resurrection is real, right? <laughs> I thought I don't want to be a downer on Easter. <laughs> but I want to teach the truth. I want to teach the importance of the resurrection. Well, that's what Paul has to say in this particular passage. Now, he begins in chapter 12 by saying, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, what Paul is basically talking about is he has already mentioned the gospel that they preached. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, Paul laid out the gospel that he and others, other apostles preached and other teachers of the word of God preached. He begins talking about it in verse 3 where he says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Notice that there are three parts to the gospel there. There are three parts to the message that Paul communicated and that the other apostles communicated and other teachers of the word of God prophets and teachers communicated. It was of first importance, he said, that he received this message of the gospel that according to the, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, what does he mean when he says, what was passed on to me, I shared with you, and is of first importance? Well, it's of importance that you and I understand what he meant. It's important that you and I understand what he was talking about. Warren Wearsby explains it this way, and I thought he did a good job of talking about this. He said this, The gospel is the most important message that the church ever proclaims. Now, please pay attention to this because there are multitudes of churches that have gone this route and have denied that the most important thing by the way they live by the ministries they are involved with, they are denying that the gospel is the most important message. The gospel is the most important message, Wiersbe says, that the church ever proclaims. While it is good to be involved in social action and the betterment of mankind, there is no reason why these ministries should preempt the gospel. 
You see, God didn't leave the church here. He didn't leave you and me here so that we could be involved only in social work, involved only in social justice, involved only in political action, involved only in uh, morality. God left us here so that you and I could proclaim a message that Jesus Christ died for our sins on Calvary's cross according to the scripture, that he rose from the dead, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead. That's the most important thing that you and I can do as believers. It's the most important thing that you and I can do as a church. It's fine to be involved in other things. It's fine to be involved in those kinds of ministries. But we must never, ever, 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 ever forget that our first ministry, our most important ministry, is that of sharing the gospel with people around us so that men and women can instead of going into a Christless eternity, go into eternity with Christ. That's the most important message that you and I can share. The most important message we can be involved with. The most important ministry we can have. You see, God didn't leave the church here so that we could be the religious form of the rotary. Or the religious form of Kiwanis. Or the original religious form of the lions or the knights of the Columbus. God didn't leave us here so that we could be the religious form of those things. Well, what I received, 15, that's chapter 15, verse 3, I passed on to you as of first importance. That is the most important thing you and I as believers can do. The most important thing we can do as a church is to share the gospel. What is that gospel? Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. We see that over and over again in Scripture. I'll give you a couple of verses. Romans 6.23, God commends His own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ died for our sins. The second part of the gospel is that he was, verse 4, that he was buried. That is, that was proof that he died. And the scripture tells us, Isaiah 53 and verse 9, predicted he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Christ was raised from the dead, proof that God accepted his sacrifice. Christ was raised from the dead, proof that he accepted his sacrifice. Christ's resurrection was authenticated by the Old Testament scriptures. Daniel 12.2, Job 19.26 expected a resurrection. Uh, it was authenticated by Old Testament scripture. It was authenticated by witnesses. Notice what Paul says here, that he appeared. He was raised on the third day according to Scripture. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at, this, at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, to me. What Paul is saying, and this is significant, 
What Paul is saying to these believers is that he is writing 1 Corinthians within 22 years of the resurrection. And he's saying that of the 500 plus people who saw Jesus Christ alive from the dead, more than half of them have not yet died, and you can go ask them. See, it was Jesus Christ's resurrection was authenticated not only by Old Testament Scripture, but authenticated by eyewitnesses. And thirdly, that Christ was raised from the dead was authenticated by the changed lives we see, particularly of the apostles, particularly of the Apostle Paul. Apart from the resurrection, one writer said, Jesus could not have conquered sin or death or hell, and those three great evils would forever be man's conquerors. Well, Paul goes on in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how come some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, in other words, where he begins of, it, it has been preached. When he says, but if it has been preached, the word if there in Greek is a first class condition, which many say can be translated as since. It, accepting it as a true statement. Not, not iffy that Christ was preached but as raised from the dead, but that was what was preached. That's what Paul is saying here. It is what was preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. But, if there, how, but how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. If there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised, and the preaching is useless, and the word useless means empty verbiage. Empty verbiage, there's nothing to it. There's nothing to what they had been teaching. It was completely meaningless. The word is empty, void, hollow empty of content. There is no message. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Your faith is useless. Your faith is empty. Your faith is hollow. That's what Paul is saying here. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we had testified about God that he raised Christ. Paul and the apostles would be no better than charlatans and liars. They taught the truth of Christ's resurrection. Thus, if there is no resurrection, they misrepresented God. But there is a resurrection. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses, verse 15, about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him in fact, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. Do you see his argument here? He's saying, folks, you can't have one foot in the word of God and one foot in the culture that believes dualism, denies that, that uh, a resurrection is good, denies Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You can't have it both ways. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 18 
Their faith would be futile, that is, without results, ineffectual. How can a dead Christ save others from death? How can a dead Christ save others from death? That's how important the resurrection of the dead is. And then those who have, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If Christ is not raised, then those who died in Christ are not in bliss, but they are in perdition. If there is no resurrection, the cross would be foolishness. Christians would be pitied for enduring the hardships and persecutions that they do. As one writer aptly put it, they suffer here and now for a faith that is only fiction. You see, without resurrection, there is no salvation. There is no gospel. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no forgiveness. There's no reason to endure hardship or persecution. There's no reason to witness, to study the Bible, or to worship. There is no hope if there's no resurrection. But the resurrection is true. Sin is atoned for. It does not have the final say. Death does not have the final say. Death has been vanquished. The tomb is empty. The lie that his body was stolen is debunked. Jesus has been seen after the resurrection. The apostles are triumphant and bold. Once they were slow to believe the resurrection, now they are triumphant and bold. They are no longer fearful and discouraged and hiding. They are willing to be martyred for their faith. Less than two months after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, they are preaching it in the same city of his death. The resurrection is true. And because of it, you and I have hope. Some of you may remember, probably only a few of you, I bet you only a couple, remember Paul Harvey? Anybody remember Paul Harvey? Okay. He shares this, the Reverend Harry Pritchett Jr., rector of All Saints Episcopal Church in Atlanta, called his attention to a boy named Philip. Philip was nine in a Sunday school class of eight-year-olds. Eight-year-olds can be cruel. The third graders did not welcome Philip into their group, not just because he was older, he was different. He was different because he suffered from Down syndrome and its obvious manifestations. One Sunday after Easter, Easter, the Sunday school teacher gathered some of those plastic eggs that pull apart in the middle. (coughs) Excuse me. The Sunday school teacher gave one of these plastic eggs to each child. On that beautiful spring day, each child was to go outdoors and discover for himself some symbol of new life. And each was to place that symbolic seed or leaf or whatever inside his egg. They would then open their eggs one by one, and each youngster would explain how his find was a symbol of new life. The youngsters gathered round on the appointed day and put their eggs on a table, and the teacher began to open them. One child had found a flower. All the children oohed and awed at the lovely symbol of new life. In another was a multicolored butterfly. 
beautiful, the girl said, and it's not easy for an eight-year-old to say beautiful. Another egg was opened to reveal a rock. Some of the children laughed. That's crazy, one said. How's a rock supposed to be like a new life? Immediately, a little boy spoke up and said, that's mine. I knew everybody would get flowers and leaves and butterflies and all that stuff, so I got a rock to be different. Everyone laughed. The teacher opened the last one, and there was nothing inside. But that's not fair, someone said. That's stupid, said another. The teacher felt a tug on his shirt. It was Philip. Looking up, he said, it's mine. I did do it. It's empty. I have new life because the tomb is empty. The class fell silent. From that day on, Philip became a part of the group. They welcomed him. Whatever had made him different was never mentioned again. Philip's family had known he would not live a long life. Just too many things wrong with the tiny body. That summer, overcome by infection, Philip died. <clears throat> On the day of his funeral, nine eight-year-old boys and girls confronted the reality of death and marched up to the altar and with flowers, not with flowers, Nine children with their Sunday school teacher placed on the casket of their friend their gift of love. An empty egg. The resurrection is real. The grave is empty and Jesus is alive from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for what we celebrate today. But we know there are those who deny the resurrection. There are those who deny that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. There are those who deny that we will have resurrection bodies like his, not subject any longer to time and space or sin and death or sickness and disease, but glorified bodies in which we will serve you through all eternity. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.